Well, this is totally unexpected. I had no idea. And because uh, I was trying to figure out this week, you know, on, on Tuesdays we plan the services. And so I'm in that room and I'm listening and injecting my own thoughts. And then when the order of service came out on Friday, there was a lot of things that I had never agreed to or thought we were going to do. And so I said, wait a second, we're not having communion before. We never, did we ever talk about that? And Eric said, oh yeah, we talked about that. And I thought, man, when you turn 65, you just forget, forget so much. And uh, so I thought, boy, are, are they letting me go? Are someone else taking over? It was kind of a weird feeling throughout yesterday trying to figure out why has everything changed and I don't think I ever agreed to any of that. So anyway, so it helps to make sense of it. Thanks, Eric, for doing your thing. But uh, yeah, thank you and thanks to all who had a hand in that. Thanks for Joy to be on the video like that. That's kind of a big deal. You, you made me tear up when you said those things, so thank you. And to see our two little baby girls on there, they're all growing up. I don't know if they're here or but uh, Kirstie and Jessica, and for the rest of you. So thank you. It's been a joy, you know, for 20 years. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I feel like saying, but uh, I feel like I want to preach the word, you know. But uh, so, but I want to thank you for your gracious kindness and uh, putting up with the, um, the inadequacies and the inabilities of, of my life. And uh, some of you have been awfully patient and enduring and kind throughout. So thank you for that. And for others of you who have joined in more recently, thank you for being part of the church family. If you're a guest today, uh, this is a total surprise. It's usually I don't like it to be about me. And uh, the staff threw me a surprise birthday party at BJ's on Wednesday. And I thought that felt awkward. And uh, now this, this kind of tops that. So I'm not a big, I'm not a big you know, just let it, let it go, move on. It's another year. But thank you. Very, very kind. And um, it sets up really kind of what I'd like to talk about. My, my concern for, for us as a church and that we would be the church that God calls us to be, that we would be the body that God wants us to be, that we do what a church does. And, and just sort of uh, threading that together, literally and figuratively, so we have these new things. And I just want to give a little shout out to Ryan Rail. Ryan Rail is the one who has designed us and he had a team of people that really put it together. You see it on, this, on the uh, wall there as you leave the, uh, in the lobby area. It says together. And, uh, and really these are symbols and metaphors of what my heart's desire is for Ch- Calvary Church. That, that as these go up, we're connected to God. But as these are threaded together like these crisscross together, they are also connecting with one another. And so it's really essential that that the church has this healthy, balance meal, that we're not totally dependent upon one gifted person or one aspect that really makes us shine brighter than somebody else, say, that they would come here, um, but that there is a wholesome quality of health where you give to one another, love one another, care for one another, but all doing it for the glory of God and for His name and really continue to push for that kind of a healthy environment for us here at Calvary Church. And so thank you for those of you who who have bought into that, you live it out, and are very gracious in that way. And I just give a shout out that it's still very much on my heart that yesterday, right here in in the worship center, 
We had a tremendous memorial service for Jonathan Sapagian, who was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident just over here on 17th Street. Um, and he's a 23-year-old young man, and Susie works in the children's ministries as an assistant in there. And uh, there was, I don't know, 800, 1,000 folks that were here, and many, many, many young people that he had touched. And I just think of all the things that have happened since that that Tuesday night, a week ago Tuesday night when he was tragically killed, 30-plus people over here across the street of what we used to call Western Med, now it's some sort of intergalactic name. But uh, <laughs> as the people came over there and, and uh, loved on them, and then throughout the last week and then even through this week and then up to yesterday, the quality of love and grace and kindness that so many people have given above and beyond to be able to support them. And uh, one of the worst things that a parent could ever have to go through, uh, to lose a loved one like that. And so uh, I thought, what a wonderful working of the body of Christ to come alongside, to love and care. Some of you sat there with Susie throughout days just to hold her hand and support her through uh, the challenging time and gave up so much to spend that time and invest in a loving and gracious way to her. So it just yesterday was just a, a culmination of that kind of an expression and just exciting to see folks as we step up and we each have our own unique giftedness, our own passion as we use those and, and express those in the body of Christ, become much healthier. And if you feel like you're on the outside looking in, you feel like maybe you, you're not connected, you're, you're not threaded together into the life of the body of Christ. We want you to be. And I'm sorry if there are things that we don't always do that helps you become part of the, the thread of life here at Calvary. But watching what happened when the Sepagians went through that and seeing how essential it is that we're part of a healthy body that unites and connects and cares and loves, that's the body. That's what Jesus had in mind when he created the body of Christ. And we'll be talking more about that as we get into Ephesians after Easter and how that is to be worked out. But let me invite you into the text of this morning that builds on that same theme. In fact, as I was reading this last week, I put in the email that uh, well, this is a, the, the theme is following Jesus' example as we prepare for Easter, that I want this week to be much like Jesus' week as he was preparing himself for the crucifixion we're preparing ourselves for not just the crucifixion, but the resurrection and the new life that he has. I came across this tremendous story of Dr. Stephen Foster. And the reason I know about Stephen Foster is because Nicholas Kristof, who writes for the New York Times, who is not necessarily one of our friends in terms of evangelical conservative Christians, um, he picked up on the story because he went to where Dr. Foster is, and that's in Angola. And as he serves in Angola, he is a doctor that ministers to patients like you see on the, behind him in the, in the screen there. And he went there, and Nicholas Kristof began his article this way. A poll last year found that Americans approved more of gays and lesbians, 53%, than of evangelical Christians at 42%. That Americans have a higher appreciation and love for gays and lesbians than they do for people like us. 
from 53 to 42% by comparison. That caught my eye. And as he began to describe his journey going to Angola and his interaction with Dr. Foster, he saw a man that on his website says, I am in Angola to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's just open with that. Sure, he wants to help heal them physically, but he wants to heal them spiritually through Jesus Christ. But as Nicholas Kristof saw Dr. Foster expressing an unconditional love and compassion to the citizens of this great country of Angola, he says his heart began to change. And he wrote this one phrase to his liberal friends, The next time you hear someone at a cocktail party mock evangelicals, think of Dr. Foster and those like him. These are the folks who don't so much proclaim the gospel as live it. They deserve better. That goes to the heart of what this message and this week is all about with Jesus Christ. With Dr. Foster, he's been doing that work in Angola for 37 years. 37 years. It's taken 37 years of faithful love, faithful service, to reach a man like Nicholas Kristof, whose heart has no compassion up to that point, at least expressed in a word, for a people like Dr. Foster and like us. And so I'm saying what I think Jesus wants us to know, that we are called into this loving relationship, remembering why Easter is in our experience and in the expression of Christ's life. Here's what he said. In John 12, 27 and 28, it's a sacrifice. It's his loving sacrifice. It says here, Jesus did in John 12, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Just before chapter 13, Jesus says, Here's my purpose, Father. I've come to die for my people that I love. That's what he's going to say. Remember, Easter is all about the sacrifice of Christ for the sins of you and me. It's nothing more than that. This last week, I interestingly read an article. Uh, there was a lawsuit against the Christian Prayer Center. The Christian Prayer Center. The Christian Prayer Center had a slogan, Pay to Pray. So people would send the Christian Prayer Center money for people in the Christian prayer center to to pray for them. And when they would send that money in, this is what they asked for. They said they saw testimonials on this website where religious leaders and lay people who claimed that God gave them healthy babies, winning lottery tickets, money for mortgage payments, and clean HIV and cancer scans after they had been prayed for. The Washington State Attorney's Office is now shutting down that website but not until 125,000 people paid over $7 million to have their prayers answered. And what were their prayers? Lottery tickets, cancer healing, no HIV, um, 
it's tragic in my mind's eye that we have people that are so desperate for God to do a work that they're paying for something that God never promised to do for them on top of that. Remember that Jesus came to die this Friday to be resurrected this next Sunday, not to have lottery ticket winnings, not to have mortgages paid off, not to heal everybody in Western Med, not to prevent your cancer from spreading if you have cancer right now, not to diminish Alzheimer's if you're struggling with the early stages of Alzheimer's, not to uh, cause your children to have better grades so they get into the college of your choice. Now, he can do any of those, and sometimes he does. But Jesus died for one reason alone, because I'm a sinner, and the only way I'm going to go to heaven is if he dies for me in my place to pay for my sins so I can be resurrected on that day. That's it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's why he explained why he is doing what he's doing. That's his purpose. We need to communicate that to people. We need to help them to see that. We need to know the purpose, and it's an expression of Jesus' love for us. This is what he says in John 13, 1. This is where we're going to be in John 13. There's an outline if you'd like to look at that as well. But in John 13, he begins this chapter. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. I love that phrase. He starts chapter 13. Now, chapter 13 through chapter 17, this is the so-called upper room discourse. It's days before the crucifixion, maybe hours before the crucifixion, depending on how you time it out. So Jesus spends one last moment, if you will, with his disciples. If you had hours to live, you knew you are going to die within 48 hours, what's the last thing you want to talk about? What's the last thing you want to do with those that you care about the most? Having spent three years with these men, what's Jesus is doing? We are learning from the Apostle John who was there, an eyewitness to them. He says, what, Je- what Jesus showed me is that he loved us to the very end. That's what I want for Calvary Church, that we love to the very end that we don't sort of turn it off because somebody said something or somebody did something that just irritates me like crazy. I don't get stuff like that. Why do we turn off our love to people, our connection with people? Because somebody sort of ticked me off. We love even through that. Now notice, who did Jesus love? Who was in John 13? Who does he call us to love? He doesn't list the easy people to love. The first person we're introduced to in the chapter where he says he loved us to the end is a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot. We all know who he is, I hope. Judas, the man who was one living in sin. Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. Judas is one of the phony guys that in John chapter 12, he goes to Jesus. And let me read from John chapter 12. He, he looks like this big noble saint And in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, John had to throw that in because he knew when he wrote this that this was in his heart. 
Judah says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Judas is lecturing Jesus about why are you wasting this money when you should be retaining it. Judas, looking like this very pious spiritual giant, knowing that he wants to keep the money for his own personal use. Personal use. That's challenging. That's very challenging. And we have these temptations that come. Let me just share a little, little inside baseball here. I sort of sampled that a little bit this last week. I had a service, at a memorial service for someone else on Wednesday. And then, the, as, as often happens, the family will say, well, now how, what are the fees? What are your fees for doing a memorial service? I said, I have no fees. I don't, we don't charge anything. Okay. Well, maybe we'll make a donation to the church. That'd be great. You're welcome to do that. Send it on in, and uh, we'll put it to good work. So after the memorial service, they handed me an envelope. In the envelope were $20 bills. And it amounted to about $300 of $20 bills. And the outside of the envelope, it says, To Pastor Dave and Calvary Church. Well, here's the little bit of Judas in me. So, so I say, well, let's see, to Pastor Dave and Calvary Church. Well, maybe they meant that... Do I split it 50-50? Is that what they meant? You know, what are, maybe, you know, it's some 20s, a bunch of 20s. Who will ever know, you know? And, and so you, you have those little things that are right there. I said, that's sort of in the, the scheme of what we do, and we have these things. And here it was three days ago. I was, and then I read about Judas here, and I say, oh, Lord, <laughs> is it me, you know? And so all of it goes to Calvary Church. I just want you to be clear. Don't, don't tune out halfway through the story. Uh, all of it goes to Calvary Church. I think that's the right thing to do. But we have these moments, don't we? Where things come along or people like Judas come along. And we think to ourselves, well, Lord, we're supposed to love them to the very end. But do you know about Judas? You mean I'm supposed to love him too? He, he's part of a them? And Jesus is saying in John 13, he's part of the deal. I allow Judas's like here in John 12. I allow Judas's in John 13. Judas was on the inner circle. Judas was the man who ran the, the finances of the discipleship group. Judas was right there. And Jesus knew all that he was doing. He was stealing, pilfering from their financial box. Jesus knew this. And it says in John 13, 1, and Jesus loved him to the very end. I challenge ourselves that if you've got somebody like Judas in your world, your relationships, your family, your neighborhood, where you work, and they're an open sinner. They've betrayed you. They've maybe stolen from you. 
They've undermined you. Jesus throws out this challenge that they're not exempt from how I'm supposed to love them. And I'll tell you what, in the 20 years that I've been here at Calvary Church, I've had some people that I, can I say this and not lose my job? I've had some people that I just feel like slapping. <laughs> just, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Why are you saying that? Why is this such a big deal? It's so unimportant to me. Why are you stirring up confusion over that? Because I can't find anything about that here. Now, I'll get exercised about this stuff, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the church in 20 years that has nothing to do with this. Jesus never talked about it. Jesus didn't care. We get to heaven, and Jesus says, you got angry over that? Come on into heaven. Let me straighten you out. You know, I feel like there's going to be those kind of conversations. I'll probably have some, too, things I get uptight about. So we, we need to love those who are like Judas who have betrayed us and wounded us and hurt us. doesn't mean you sort of give in and sort of become a victim. No. There's a certain kind of love. We'll talk about it in just a moment. But then there are those who we are to love who are maybe more of us have people like Peter. Peter was right there in that group. Jesus went to wash his feet. That's the next person that we see in the scene in John 13. Jesus comes up and says, I'm going to wash your feet. Jesus, Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. Well, let me just go through it. Who are the people that we're supposed to love? It's people like Peter. What are some of those traits of Peter? Now, Peter had tremendous qualities. I could never even measure up to a lot of what Peter ever did. But let me just take four of those areas very quickly. He's sort of an inconsistent, frustrating faith guy who sort of boldly speaks out but then sort of like loses it. Here's one good example in Matthew. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, came forward, Jesus, came toward Jesus, I should say. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, a lot of us know that story. Most of us would say, well, we were probably not even getting out of the boat. We don't have that much faith. But at least he got out of the boat. But there's a lot of people I've known, and maybe I've done it as well, who start out strong, look bold, look gifted, look amazing, like getting out of the boat, like, wow, look at Peter, look at this guy, look at this guy. This is amazing faith. What a tremendous, tremendous servant he's going to be for Jesus. Getting out of the boat, walking on the water. He's got stories. They'll write books about him. They'll have movies about him. Fantastic guy. We wish that we had faith like that. And then it's just a matter of minutes or hours, and they're sinking. I, I get exhausted with stars of faith who sink because they can't finish well. We're called to love those people. And it's hard to do. Because in Christianity today, there's a celebrity standard. And it's tough. But Jesus says, even when they fail in that once shining faith, we kind of come alongside and we help them. We love them. And it's not easy to do.
We also know that Jesus was loving Peter with an immature faith in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, we read these words. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Jesus said that repeatedly, but they never really heard it until after the resurrection. But then underlined, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. We know that phrase, we use it. You are a stumbling block to me, but for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. I don't know about you, but I occasionally run into my, even I will do this and others will do that, where Peter, we like to tell God how to do things. We like to, Jesus, you know, here, here's what you should do for that person. Here's what you do for this situation. Uh, when a terrible thing like Jonathan's accident occurs, we say, well, Jesus, weren't you at that intersection on 17th and Linwood? Where, where were you then? You should have shown up. You should have miraculously caused it to not happen. We will have, I will have those thoughts. Where, where was he and how do I answer those who ask that question? What Peter is doing here for someone like me, he's saying, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. The Christian life should be pain-free. When you become a Christian, it's like you have a, a constant medical flow of some sort of narcotic, so you are exempt from pain of life. That's what Peter's saying. Jesus, you don't have to suffer. And Jesus says, I rebuke you. That's satanic. It's satanic to think that I can go through my Christian life and never have to suffer, never have to feel pain, never have to question why, never have to be a victim of someone else's abuse. I will always suffer. We will suffer. We will all die. We will all die of something. We will all be wounded or injured or be betrayed. I'm sounding really negative right now but I just want us to be alert to the mindset of a Peter who said, Lord, that shall never happen to you. And we say, God, it should never happen to me. And God says, what makes you exempt from the sacrifice of being my follower? We will be wounded for our faith. We will be challenged in our faith. We will be belittled for our faith. And this coming election, we might lose a lot of what we counted as a privilege of a certain kind of freedom. We are being undermined. And Jesus is saying, don't put man's interests above God's. Pay the price of being godly. Don't squander it by simply going, as my dad used to tell me, David, you're always wanting to go to the path of least resistance. I was always looking for the easy way out. And my dad says, no. It's going to cost you to remain faithful to the call, as it did Jesus. We are to be, love people like Peter who had this sense of pride, and I'm going to mo move through that one for the sake of time. But we're also called to love like Christ did when people fail to keep promises. This is intriguing to me. In Matthew 26... Peter didn't keep his promise. 
Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Yeah, Lord, I'm with you. I'm with you. I commit. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. I will, I will go to the deathbed for you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Oh, man. And we know that. And here, here's the challenge for you and me. We, we might have friends who have made promises to us. And I think over the 20 years, sort of feeling sort of nostalgic here a little bit, over the 20 years that I've been here, and I, I look at how many people that I have known whose marriages have failed. And it's heartbreaking. Because there was a day when those who got married stood on an altar as pretty as could be and said to one another, till death do us part, I'm in, let's go. No one forced them. There was no shotgun behind the guy's neck. You know, they did it voluntarily. At one point there was this love. And if I could add up all the folks that I know that have gone through that broken promise phase. It's heartbreaking. And then we still have to love them. Peter made a promise. Till death do us part. That's what Peter said. Essentially the same thing. I'll die with you. Till death do us part. How do you love people who break their promises to you? It's a hard thing to do. But I don't want to put my mind on man's interest. I want to put it on God's. I want God's priorities for this. So God is calling us into this life. That's why it's, it's a dangerous and hazardous job to become a Christian. Because suddenly you and I are thrust into standards that those who are not Christians, they can blow them off. They don't have to do that. But as soon as I said, I sign on, Lord, you're my Savior and now you're my Lord. I sign on to something that is extremely hard to live in a world whose gravitational pull is to take me away from the concepts of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gives us this wonderful, wonderful story of John 13 of the kind of people we're supposed to love. People like Judas who break our heart. People like Peter that can look so great one day and so disappointing the next. Well, you and I are supposed to love them. And I'm just telling you, it's a hard thing to do. But if I saw anything in life of Christ, let me give you these four. We are out of time. What I love about Jesus is that he just humbly served them. And I invite you to read through in John, 5, John 13, 5 through 20. Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Jesus, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. I, I don't think I could do that. If Jesus says, Dave, show me how much you love me by washing the feet of a man who is going to betray you and undermine you and cost you your life. Wow, that's hard to do. It's hard, it's hard for me to wash anybody's feet. Two years ago on missions retreat, missionary retreat, we just had a missions retreat this last week, well, a year ago, we were up at Idlewild, and Matt Doan had this great idea. 
that we should wash the missionaries' feet. Well, I had to wash Orrin West's feet. And I'm telling you, <laughs> it's not a pretty thing to wash the feet of... Well, it was hard enough to do it of a gentle, spiritual giant like Orrin West. Could I do it with someone like Judas? We are humbly here to serve them and care for them and become a friend to them and love them and be kind. You know, I was just thinking about even with Jonathan. A few days after Jonathan was killed, I went over to the Santa Ana PD and wandered around and I talked to two of the motor officers that were called to the scene. They had already been home. One officer says, yeah, I was stretching out on the bed with my kids, about ready to fall asleep. Got a call from the sergeant. We have a situation, so I had to put back his uniform on, get in his motor vehicle, his motorcycle, come to the scene and do what they do. And as I was talking to him and another motor officer that was there, and I talked to both of them individually, and both of them said, whenever we come to a scene like that, there's just a little bit of us, a little bit of life, goes out of us. I say that because there are a lot of police officers that have been abused over this last year, and they're not looking for anything. They, they come across pretty strong like, I've got it together. I get that. But I want you to know that one officer and that other officer that I talked to, their hearts are broken over what they see as a tremendous loss and the families. And I was sitting one the officer behind him was his computer screen and his kids scrolling on that screen. I said, those are your kids. Yeah. It breaks their heart. We come alongside, no matter how good it looks like we have it on the outside, you got to know there's something on the inside that needs what Jesus needs, this humble service of loving people, loving them. And don't let the outside fool you about the inside's needs. So Jesus loved. He grieved over their sins. He didn't judge and ridicule them. Jesus said this, he became trouble in his spirit, and he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And he knew that it was Judas, and he, he was grieved over this loss. He was grieved over this loss. We have people in our lives, don't we? I do. You probably do. Who I am so ticked off at because of their belligerent, rebellious disobedience of God. And it's just irritating. And I just want to come alongside and shake them. I want to judge them. I want to criticize them. I need to feel the way Jesus felt. He says he was troubled. That word troubled is used in John eleven thirty three. There Jesus is troubled over the fact that Lazarus, his very best friend, had died. And in John eleven thirty five, two verses later, it says Jesus wept. I should weep brokenhearted over those who fail to walk with Jesus. Not judge them, not criticize them, not mock them, not ridicule them. That's Jesus. 
That's our standard. That's the, the level that he's challenging us to live in. And then Jesus patiently hopes for and seeks reconciliation. It says in John 13, Then Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to them. So that when he had dipped his morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. Now, we don't know these things because it's a little bit odd for us to sit at a dinner table and for somebody to say, Pass me the bread. And I take the bread and I break off a chunk of it and I dip it in their drink and then feed it to them. I would hate it if somebody did that to me because I don't like other people's germs. For me to do it for someone else, now when Kirstie and Jessica were little, obviously, but can you imagine a bunch of adults and suddenly I break off a chunk of bread, dip it in their, their uh, drink, and then, here, let me feed it to you? Really weird. But if you went back in time and you were sitting there and you watched Jesus do this, Culturally, culturally, what you would see Jesus doing, saying to Judas, wow, he really loves that guy. Because that's what the host would do to one of his friends. Giving him this morsel of bread dipped in the wine and feeding Judas was a sign in those days of love, friendship, reaching out. What Jesus, I think, is saying is, Judas, I still love you, brother. I know what you're going to do. I'm giving you one more chance to not do it. It was a sign of seeking reconciliation with a friend. Beautiful. That's how we should be to those who are Judas and Peter to us. And then finally, don't stop loving them. John 13, 1, and then 34 and 35. A new, I love them to the end. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The greatest sign of discipleship is my ability to love people in my life. It's not how much knowledge I have. It's not my seminary degree. It's not how many church services I attend. It's not how much money I get. Jesus had a lot of things he could have chosen to say, this is what they will know. This is how they will know you are my disciple. Jesus had a lot of opportunities, of a lot of things he could have. But he said, you know what? I'm going to boil it down real simple. If you just start loving people like Judas and Peter, now we'll love the easy lovers, but the hard ones are tough. So if you love the hard ones, I know you'll love the easy ones to love. And so he calls us into that. And my prayer is that in 40 years from now, when I'll probably not be here, and that in 50 years from now, we who love one another will have passed that on to the generations that follow and that they too will love one another. Not just us in this room, but us in this community in Orange County and around the world. That's the invitation. That's Palm Sunday. It's an invitation to a tremendous call of displaying discipleship in the most basic way. Love one another. And I invite you into it. Let me pray. Help us, Father, as we live out this life that is not always easy to do. Father, it's... uh, You know, it would be easier if we didn't have all these uh, instructions from your word that tells us what we have to do and we just sort of 
Lord, it would be easier for me if we just sort of did what we felt like doing, not what you told us to do. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us and challenge us and call us and strengthen us and empower us to be a good servant of yours, to live it out in a faithful and holy way. Help us to love those who are like Judas, who have betrayed us and hurt us. Help us to love those who are like Peter, who on one hand look like they've got great faith, but on the other hand they're sinking way too soon, and who have disappointed us with broken promises, who made a commitment and broke it, who seemed as though they were on our side but denied us, not just once but even three times, repeatedly, repeatedly. Father, they are, they are hard for us to love, and yet you loved them. So help us that we be like that as well. Help us to love you in a grander and deeper and a wider way. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.